This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 55 A Vendetta and Other Things. During my three days' stay in the town, I woke up every morning with the impression that I was a boy, for in my dreams the faces were all young again, and looked as they had looked in the old times. But I went to bed a hundred years old every night, for meantime I had been seeing those faces as they are now. Of course I suffered some surprises along at first, before I had become adjusted to the changed state of things. I met young ladies who did not seem to have changed at all, but they turned out to be the daughters of the young ladies I had in mind, sometimes their granddaughters. When you are told that a stranger of fifty is a grandmother, there is nothing surprising about it. But if, on the contrary, she is a person whom you knew as a little girl, it seems impossible. You say to yourself, how can a little girl be a grandmother? It takes some little time to accept and realize the fact that, while you have been growing old, your friends have not been standing still in that matter. I noticed that the greatest changes observable were with the women, not the men. I saw men whom thirty years had changed but slightly, but their wives had grown old. These were good women. It is very wearing to be good. There was a saddler whom I wished to see, but he was gone, dead these many years, they said. Once or twice a day the saddler used to go tearing down the street, putting on his coat as he went, and then everybody knew a steamboat was coming. Everybody knew, also, that John Staveley was not expecting anybody by the boat, or any freight either, and Staveley must have known that everybody knew this. Still it made no difference to him. He liked to seem to himself to be expecting a hundred thousand tons of saddles by this boat, and so he went on all his life, enjoying being faithfully on hand to receive and receipt for those saddles, in case by any miracle they should come. A malicious Quincy paper used always to refer to this town in derision as Staveley's Landing. Staveley was one of my earliest admirations. I envied him his rush of imaginary business, and the display he was able to make of it before strangers, as he went flying down the street struggling with his fluttering coat. But there was a carpenter who was my chiefest hero. He was a mighty liar, but I did not know that. I believed everything he said. He was a romantic, sentimental, melodramatic fraud, and his bearing impressed me with awe. I vividly remember the first time he took me into his confidence. He was planning a board, and every now and then he would pause and heave a deep sigh, and occasionally mutter broken sentences, confused and not intelligible, but out of their midst an ejaculation sometimes escaped which made me shiver and did me good. One was, "'Oh, God, it is his blood!' I sat on the tool-chest and humbly and shudderingly admired him for I judged he was full of crime. At last he said in a low voice, "'My little friend, can you keep a secret?' I eagerly said I could. "'A dark and dreadful one?' I satisfied him on that point. "'Then I will tell you some passages in my history, 
for, oh, I must relieve my burdened soul, or I shall die. He cautioned me once more to be as silent as the grave. Then he told me he was a red-handed murderer. He put down his plane, held his hands out before him, contemplated them sadly, and said, Look, with these hands I have taken the lives of thirty human beings. The effect which this had upon me was an inspiration to him, and he turned himself loose upon his subject with interest and energy. He left generalizing, and went into details, began with his first murder, described it, told what measures he had taken to avert suspicion, then passed to his second homicide, his third, his fourth, and so on. He had always done his murders with a bowie-knife, and he made all my hairs rise by suddenly snatching it out and showing it to me. At the end of this first séance I went home with six of his fearful secrets among my freightage, and found them a great help to my dreams, which had been sluggish for a while back. I sought him again and again on my Saturday holidays. In fact, I spent the summer with him, all of which was valuable to me. His fascinations never diminished, for he threw something fresh and stirring in the way of horror into each successive murder. He always gave names, dates, places, everything. This, by and by, enabled me to note two things, that he had killed his victims in every quarter of the globe, and that these victims were always named Lynch. The destruction of the Lynches went serenely on, Saturday after Saturday until the original thirty had multiplied to sixty, and more to be heard from yet. Then my curiosity got the better of my timidity, and I asked how it happened that these justly punished persons all bore the same name. My hero said he had never divulged that dark secret to any living being, but felt that he could trust me and therefore he would lay bare before me the story of his sad and blighted life. He had loved one too fair for earth, and she had reciprocated with all the sweet affection of her pure and noble nature. But he had a rival, a base hireling named Archibald Lynch, who said the girl should be his, or he would dye his hands in her heart's best blood. The carpenter, innocent and happy in love's young dream, gave no weight to the threat, but led his golden-haired darling to the altar, and there the two were made one. There also, just as the minister's hands were stretched in blessing over their heads, the fell deed was done, with a knife, and the bride fell a corpse at her husband's feet. And what did the husband do? He plucked forth that knife, and kneeling by the body of his lost one, swore to consecrate his life to the extermination of all the human scum that bear the hated name of Lynch. That was it. He had been hunting down the Lynches and slaughtering them from that day to this, twenty years. He had always used that same consecrated knife. With it he had murdered his long array of Lynches, and with it he had left upon the forehead of each victim a peculiar mark, a cross, deeply incised, said he, the cross of the mysterious avenger is known in Europe, in America, in China, in Siam, in the tropics, in the polar seas, in the deserts of Asia, in all the earth. 
wherever in the uttermost parts of the globe a lynch has penetrated, there has the mysterious cross been seen, and those who have seen it have shuddered and said, It is his mark, he has been here. You have heard of the mysterious avenger. Look upon him, for before you stands no less a person. But beware, breathe not a word to any soul. Be silent and wait. Some morning this town will flock aghast to view a gory corpse. On its brow will be seen the awful sign, and men will tremble and whisper, He has been here. It is the mysterious avenger's mark. You will come here, but I shall have vanished. You will see me no more. This ass had been reading the say, no doubt, and had had his poor romantic head turned by it, but as I had not yet seen the book then, I took his inventions for truth, and did not suspect that he was a plagiarist. However, we had a lynch living in the town, and the more I reflected upon his impending doom, the more I could not sleep. It seemed my plain duty to save him, and a still plainer and more important duty to get some sleep for myself. So at last I ventured to go to Mr. Lynch, and tell him what was about to happen to him, under strict secrecy. I advised him to fly, and certainly expected him to do it, but he laughed at me, and he did not stop there. He led me down to the carpenter's shop, gave the carpenter a jeering and scornful lecture upon his silly pretensions, slapped his face, made him get down on his knees and beg, then went off and left me to contemplate the cheap and pitiful ruin of what, in my eyes, had so lately been a majestic and incomparable hero. The carpenter blustered, flourished his knife, and doomed this lynch in his usual volcanic style, the size of his fateful words undiminished. But it was all wasted upon me. He was a hero to me no longer, but only a poor, foolish, exposed humbug. I was ashamed of him, and ashamed of myself. I took no further interest in him, and never went to his shop any more. He was a heavy loss to me, for he was the greatest hero I had ever known. The fellow must have had some talent, for some of his imaginary murders were so vividly and dramatically described that I remember all their details yet. The people of Hannibal are not more changed than is the town. It is no longer a village. It is a city, with a mayor, and a council, and waterworks, and probably a debt. It has fifteen thousand people, is a thriving and energetic place, and is paved like the rest of the west and south, where a well-paved street and a good sidewalk are things so seldom seen that one doubts them when he does see them. The customary half-dozen railways center in Hannibal now, and there is a new depot which cost a hundred thousand dollars. In my time the town had no specialty, and no commercial grandeur. The daily packet usually landed a passenger, and bought a catfish, and took away another passenger, and a hatful of freight. But now a huge commerce in lumber has grown up, and a large miscellaneous commerce is one of the results. A deal of money changes hands there now. Bear Creek, so-called, perhaps, because it was always so particularly bare of bears, is hidden out of sight now, under islands and continents of piled lumber, and nobody but an expert can find it. I used to get drowned in it every summer regularly, and be drained out, and inflated and set going again by some chance enemy. 
but not enough of it is unoccupied now to drown a person in. It was a famous breeder of chills and fever in its day. I remember one summer when everybody in town had this disease at once. Many chimneys were shaken down, and all the houses were so racked that the town had to be rebuilt. The chasm or gorge between Lover's Leap and the hill west of it is supposed by scientists to have been caused by glacial action. This is a mistake. There is an interesting cave a mile or two below Hannibal among the bluffs. I would have liked to revisit it, but had no time. In my time, the person who then owned it turned it into a mausoleum for his daughter, aged fourteen. The body of this poor child was put into a copper cylinder filled with alcohol, and this was suspended in one of the dismal avenues of the cave. The top of the cylinder was removable, and it was said to be a common thing for the base order of tourists to drag the dead face into view and examine it and comment upon it. End of chapter 55